All right, let's talk science, and let's talk science for the whole doggone segment, shall we? I'm sick of politics and movie stuff. Well, I, actually, it's, I'm not really sick of it, but we do like to do science, and we haven't done enough of it, so let's, let's take the plunge. Uh, first, big story. In fact, big, huge, humongous story of the week going on uh, in Washington, D.C. at a press conference from NASA. Analysis of the data from the Spirit and Opportunity rovers, particularly in this case the Opportunity rovers, have proven that there was water and lots of it on Mars. Proven to the satisfaction of the Mars scientists. Headed by, uh, I think, Steve Squires from Cornell University. um, They can't find an alternate explanation for how minerals bearing sulfur could have been formed unless it was by sulfates in solution after the water all evaporated. This is really cool stuff. Now, anyone who studies the planet Mars, and and we talked about Professor William Hartman, who we will also add to the Mars mix in the future. Hartman, Dr. Hartman said he would be glad to talk to the KDVS listening audience about his book, a Traveler's Guide to Mars. Um, when you look at the the morphology of the surface of Mars, there just there just is no room for doubt that there's water everywhere and it's still there. Now the the orbiting probes looked down and saw the signature using radiation. They were able to find a signature for hydrogen that indicates that there's water all over the surface of Mars. But seeing it from orbit isn't enough for some people. You have to go and, and looking and seeing evidence of it in, in craters, in what looks like great glaciers, in what looks like gullies, and looks like eruptions here and there. None of that's enough for some people. You have to go on the ground, do some prospecting, dig around, and find firsthand evidence. Well, NASA's now convinced that they have, that there's beyond a doubt evidence that these rocks were under water and lots of it, perhaps enough to make one of the Great Lakes. Mars, uh, at one point in the past, and this is the tricky part, when? When did this all disappear? But certainly early in its history, there was lots and lots and lots of water on Mars. There were large rivers. Yes, rivers on the surface. There, there's no water on the surface now because there's not enough atmosphere. Uh, we Earth people should find out what happened to the Martian atmosphere. This would be very interesting to know as we try and make decisions about global warming, what to do on Earth, where to spend money, how to allocate resources. Uh, Mars is kind of a control planet. We can go there and learn a lot about what happened on Earth because the evidence is still laying around. There hasn't been all of this weathering and uh, you know plate tectonics and oceanic motions and this and that to alter uh, the picture of what the Earth um, looked like originally or how it has evolved. We, we fi- we're able to figure this out with time, but hey, when you've got a control planet you can go land on and see things as they've been with much, much, much reduced rates of erosion and, and change over time, well, there's going to be a huge payoff. Now, we don't, we don't think about this on Earth, but most of the water that falls from the sky goes back to the ocean through the ground. I mean, more water comes back to the oceans through the rock layers of the earth than is flowing via rivers. I mean, you ever go down to the beach and dug down 
and you find fresh water, well, it's fresh water is flowing in through the beach, beach sand of the entire world from the land surface. Whether it's coming down through a stream or not, it's finding its way back to the ocean. If you go to some of the most uh, dry spots on Earth, where you think, my God, there's no water here. Let's take the Sahara, the largest desert on the surface of the Earth. You dig down, there's water. There's water that's been there a million years. They, in, fact, in fact, they recently have dated some of this fossil water. It's still down there. It's still slowly percolating through rock layers. It's been there a long, long time. There's no reason to suppose that the same situation does not exist on Mars, that what was once an ocean has now gone down into the crust, and that if you dig down, you will find liquid water. It amazes me what we keep finding out about the Earth. Uh, And we should address some articles that have recently appeared in New Scientist and Discover Magazine, and oddly enough, in The Economist, when when it gets to doing some science writing, they do a first-class job over there in in the U.K., Uh, Cover story on Discover Magazine, March 2004, the current issue, entitled 20 with zero stretching off to infinity, microbes under the sea. Um, Scientists have discovered recently that nearly a third of all the life on this planet consists of microbes living under the sea floor in a dark world without oxygen. It's sort of worth uh, comparing this to Mars. We know there's not enough oxygen on Mars uh, for life like we, as we think of life, but there's not enough oxygen under seafloor sediment for life as we think of it because, um, well, there isn't enough oxygen down there, but this is fine for these organisms because oxygen is poisonous to these organisms. And, you know, we all know if you're, you know, study biology or bacteriology that there's plenty of organisms out there in your own gut. Your own gut is filled with organisms to which oxygen is poisonous. Think about that. In your own GI tract, there are bacteria to which oxygen is a poison and they're there in large numbers. So I don't think it's much of a stretch to imagine that organisms that uh, can live without oxygen or to which in fact oxygen might be poisonous might be found under the surface of Mars. They're certainly found under the surface of the Earth at surprising depths. They've now found under the sludge of of seafloor, the bottom of the seafloor, Sometimes a mile down, they'll find these bugs in astonishing numbers. And one of the most amazing things about this is that they're making methane. And one of the most, even more amazing things is that ice under pressure, and I don't get this at all. If someone had told me that under the seafloor there's ice, I would have laughed and said, no, 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 you can get down close to 32 degrees at the bottom of the ocean. But, uh, no, you're not going to form ice. Well, well, saying that, I'd be wrong. There is ice, and there is methane mixed with this ice, and there's so much of this stuff under the seafloor of planet Earth that it actually may even dwarf the amount of hydrocarbons in the oil fields of the world. This is truly amazing. It just, you know, I w- if someone had told me this 20 years ago, I'd, I'd figure they must be smoking crack because this just doesn't make any sense at all. But... This stuff, methane hydrate, is weird. It's all over the place. Uh, The Discover article shows people pulling this ice up and lighting it on fire because the ice is full of methane gas. It's very strange. It's called a clathrate, a term derived from the Latin word for cage. These methane hydrates consist of molecules of methane trapped in cages of H2O. But uh, under high pressure, the methane insulates itself into into these 
water molecules. And because it's under pressure at 30 times normal, you know, under like a thousand feet of water, the hydrates can form at temperatures well above 32 degrees Fahrenheit. That's why you're getting this ice. Now, apparently, ships have noted this stuff for a long time. I mean, at 200 years ago, methane hydrates were discovered by Russian scientists in, in Siberian permafrost. But, you know, that's more expected where the, you know, the ground is so cold there that hydrates can form at shallower depths. But they found that also in the 1970s in the bottom of the Black Sea. And uh, so much methane comes out of the Black Sea that sailors have reported seeing lightning igniting it at the surface. Fast forward to the 1980s, researchers drilling on the ocean floor first began to understand that this stuff is everywhere. It has to do with bugs making methane and ice forming under the sea crust. This is a whole world that most of us have never heard about until very recently. Then the article shows this mock coral, this chimney of material that's formed by the organisms that basically makes these coral-like structures, like coral reefs, which somewhat analogous to coral is formed by tiny primitive organisms, uh, you know, that excrete carbonates. Of course, coral is a, is a small animal. These are actually formed by, you know, this, this type of microbe, considerably smaller than, uh, the, than what makes coral. We gotta ask somebody at UCD about this. I just have a hard time with the chunks of ice being dislodged from the sea floor, floating away to the surface, and then presumably <laughs> being struck by lightning and igniting. It's too weird. But people have noted there's so much of this stuff down there that if the ocean were to warm a little bit, just warm a little bit worldwide, a lot of it might a lot more of it might come up and might produce enough methane to alter the composition of the earth enough to ignite more runaway global warming. Uh, there's some speculation here this may have happened in the past. They look at the organisms in the seafloor that disappeared suddenly in the Paleocene epoch 55 million years ago, and people wonder. All right, let's do some other stuff. Uh, February, February 7, 2004, issue of New Scientist magazine. Three million years ago, the world was much warmer than today, yet carbon dioxide levels were only marginally higher. So what reset the global thermostat? Well, this is a good question. Atmospheric CO2 levels during the Pliocene epoch, three, three million years ago, three zero million years ago, were 400 parts per million, only slightly higher than today's 370 parts per million, but global temperatures averaged several degrees warmer. They're doing some computer modeling to figure out what this, uh, what's, what's going on here, but I, it is kind of disturbing that CO2 in the atmosphere, we've got an ice core on Greenland that goes down 400,000 years. And uh, as far as I know, the CO2 levels we've now seen in Earth's atmosphere, which are, of course, due to fossil fuel burning in the last century and a half, are the highest they've been in 400,000 years. Now, we're in an interglacial period. Glaciers keep forming, you know, Crusts of ice thousands of feet thick form. I mean, Yosemite Valley, Calf Dome was scoured by ice thousands of feet thick above it. Nobody's sure what triggers these ice ages. And it, I remember being reading speculation years ago that you might get a century of warming that might deposit more precipitation and high altitudes, more snow. It might trigger another, another ice age. We just don't know. We're expecting global warming to kick in and last a long time but we just don't have enough information. But scientists continue to study this, thank goodness, and hopefully we'll have some answers. And what's going on at Mars 
is probably going to help this process. That $820 million of your tax uh, tax monies funneled into a NASA for these Mars probes, believe me, were dollars well spent. A couple more quick water-related issues. Uh, the ocean off the coast of Namibia is apparently brewing up... Um, well, some toxic sludge. Apparently, milky there's a milky green slurry that's visible in this satellite photo off the coast of Namibia in South Africa. It's an upwelling that exists, a natural upwelling off the coast in this part of Africa that uh, they've noted for quite a long time, I guess a couple hundred of years, occasionally um, sees a bloom of diatoms. Apparently, bacteria in the, then break down these diatoms. They produce hydrogen sulfide, and uh, you get hydrogen sulfide gas in the ocean water, poisoning marine life and stripping oxygen from the water. Um, they note that in, in, the, in these hydrogens, there was a major hydrogen sulfide eruption in 2001, smothered 22,000 square kilometers of ocean. Pretty amazing. We think of uh, ecological disasters that are man-made, and God knows there's no shortage of those. But it is fascinating that you can get this many square kilometers of ocean that can be affected by a natural process, which isn't to say that man may not play a role in this, because usually when you look, you find that man is affecting this sort of thing. But um, perhaps not in this case. In a case where a man is screwing things up, uh, the Aral Sea, which if you look in old um, atlases, is listed as the world's fourth largest inland body of water. The Aral Sea has largely dried up. Thanks to the fact that in the 1960s, the Soviet Union started uh, diverting water to grow cotton, which is a very thirsty crop. Well, the Soviet Union broke up. What we now find is that areas of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, independent nations, and I believe Turkmenistan in the same general area, are growing cotton with the water that used to flow into the Aral Sea. Well, they're now talking about, uh, Russia's talking about diverting 7% of the Ob River and sending it south to replenish the water that was lost going to the Aral Sea. The Aral Sea's turned into kind of a toxic dump, blowing uh, contaminated salts and, and, you know, with pesticide in it all over the place. And it's thought that if they, can, if they can prevent ecological disaster and keep the cotton growing, well, this might prevent political instability on Russia's underbelly. A lot of folks think this may not be such a great idea, uh, roughly ir- the equivalent to irrigating Mexico using uh, North American Great Lakes water. They note that as it is in the article... Uh, that Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, you know, basically lose an awful lot of the water because they're in ditches that aren't sealed and it just more or less drains away. 60% of the water intended for farms does not actually reach the fields. On the other hand, considering what a bona fide disaster the Aral Sea largely drying up has been, uh, maybe this is the lesser of two evils. I don't know. All right, let's go to The Economist magazine. If you don't read The Economist, you you should every so often. It's got some pretty first-class articles, and one on science and technology from the February 21st issue is worthy of discussion. Dogs. Dogs are man's best friend. It's been speculated now that uh, what makes the dog such a success in life is that he's able to just inherently understand social cues from Earth's dominant species, Homo sapiens. Apparently, Dr. Brian Hare of Harvard University decided to test dogs, comparing the ability of dogs with those of chimpanzees. Now, chimpanzees, of course, are regarded virtually universally as second only to humans 
in their level of innate intelligence. But studying chimps, people realized the chimps just don't pick up on cues from people very well. And it was thought, you know, my dog could do a much better job of this. Well, they actually decided to study this. So, food was put under two cups. Chimps and dogs were presented with the cups. By chance, they'd guess where the food was 50% of the time. Well, the researchers discovered that if he signaled in some way which was the cup under which the food lay, the dog would instinctively get it, and he would get it right just about every time, while the chimpanzee would do only slightly better than chance. Chimps simply did not get the idea of social signals of this sort. They kept repeating this, and they kept getting the same results. The dogs would get it. So they looked at it a little bit further. Um, They tested wolves. Wolves are no better than chimpanzees at working out where the food is hidden. They don't pick up on the cues. So um, they tried this cup game on dogs that had been reared in kennels that had minimal human contact. Those dogs, instantly, no problem. You'd, you'd, You'd indicate where the food was. These dogs got it. They got what the human was trying to convey to them. So they focused on the idea that apparently a sensitivity to human social cues is a fairly recent genetic adaptation that has evolved specifically to allow dogs to enter a new ecological niche, that of being symbiotic with people. Now, the greater question is, what kind of genes are coding for innate ability to understand when a human being points at a cup, there's food under it? I, I don't, research must continue in that area because I don't get that at all. But somehow it's in the genes. And to test that hypothesis, they went to New Guinea and found that there are feral dogs living in New Guinea. They're called singing dogs. They have escaped from human captivity and and, and have lived out on their own on the island. And these are not like domesticated uh, dogs anymore. They went and found some of these. They rounded a few up and then tested them like they did the chimps and the wolves. Well, guess what? New Guinea's singing dogs are no better than wolves or chimpanzees in picking up human cues. Apparently, they've been separated from human beings long enough to where that natural selection was no longer an advantage somehow to be able to pick up human cues, so that ability was lost and lost fairly quickly. They found that singing dogs, even if raised from puppyhood by people, were still no better than wolves or chimps. So it is something genetic. I find this to be absolutely fascinating, and I just can't even begin to explain it. Doggone it, the time goes by too quickly. That's it for this science segment. I got a little I got one more that I'm gonna hold over to the third segment though, so stay tuned. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and this is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Mm-hmm. 